welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with Taylor Steele. Taylor was the singer for the 1990s hardcore band, Four Walls Falling. As vocalist, he delivered leftist politics with a concern for both animal welfare and the environment, backed with a lyrical positivity that encouraged the listener to believe in their own power and capabilities, a foundation that served as an inspiration for many future Richmond punks, as well as folks in the punk scene at large. And Taylor's presence in the scene extended beyond the band. For many years, the house he lived in at 805 West Cary Street, here in Richmond, Virginia, became a place for touring bands to play, as well as a place to hang out. And as Taylor got older, he also kept going to shows, kind of illuminating that sense of possibility that he has always seemed to hold. So it was exciting to talk to Taylor and get to learn about his start in the 1980s Richmond punk scene, his influences in both music and in ethics, as well as to hear some cool stories and reflection on punk and Richmond punk's path through the past few decades. It was a great conversation. Taylor is both very thoughtful and very humble, and I think you will enjoy it as well. Enjoy. How did you get into punk rock? Oh, wow. So let me let me go back in the way back machine here. So I'm guess I, I don't know really where to start. I mean, I'm 55 now, 55. And so in the 70s was probably early 70s when I was like six, eight. I don't know. That's when I started listening to rock music, you know, all the standard stuff like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and whatever was being played on the radio at the time. And, you know, as I progressed through the 70s, not really knowing anything about punk rock, even in 77, I didn't even really know anything about punk rock. I, you know, I'd seen the news chant stuff about the Sex Pistols, which you didn't hear their record. You just saw people jumping around and then commentators saying things about it and whatnot. But, um, you know, all the stuff that I liked, whether it was, you know, ACDC or Led Zeppelin or anything else, Molly Hatchet or, or whatever I listened to in the 70s, I always liked the fast stuff that they did better than the slower stuff. And I also started probably listening to the new wave a little bit in the early 80s as well. Because, you know, that, that was really what was the only thing that was out at that point, besides, you know, Judas Priest, you know, some metal. And I was into skateboarding, that kind of thing. And I was down at my cousin's. I guess it was like maybe 1981, maybe. And he lived uh, probably about two blocks from what would be Columbia, South Carolina's Carytown area. And they had okay. a record store there that was much like Plan 9, used to be in the early um, early 80s as well, mid-80s, what have you. He was just always buying used records in there, you know, for, for a buck or two bucks. And he bought the Sex Pistols record, uh, never mind the Bullocks. And I get down there, and he's like, oh, you got to hear this. This is incredible. It's probably not like you think it's going to sound from, you know, what people said about in the 70s. So I was like, all right, I'll take a listen to it. And I listened to it, and I was like, holy cow, this is like everything I like rolled up into one thing. It's like metal, it's like new wave, it's all of it like combined, but like sped up and just nastier, and I just, I love it. It's it's great. Well, you know, about two years later, Damaged by Black Flag came out. Uh, I was at Peach's Records and Tapes that used to, big corporate record store that used to be on Broad Street out in the West End. They had the Black Flag Damage record just come out, and I remember seeing pictures of them in um, Thrasher, and it was back when Thrasher was like more looked more like a newspaper than an actual magazine. 
And I was like, oh, well, this is probably pretty good. It probably sounds like the Sex Pistols. I'm going to buy it and take it home and listen to it. So I did that, and that completely blew my mind. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I was like, man, the Sex Pistols, I thought that that was the coolest thing, but this is even better. And it was just, from there, I was just hooked. I was just hooked, and I'd go to Plan 9 when it used to be in a tiny, tiny little place across the street from the Bird Theater over mm-hmm. there in in Carytown. I think the restaurant takes up the whole building now, but it was in half the building. was. And I'd just buy, you know, go into the hardcore punk section, just buy records based on the, the what the cover looked like. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what any of them sounded like. And I'd get home, I'd go, this one's awesome, or this one's good, but not as good as the other. So, you know, the, the earliest records I remember loving were like the, the uh, Minor Threat 7 Inches, the Flex Your Head record, uh, the Circle Jerks, um, you know, group sex, stuff like that just really, like, blew my mind. And I, and I pretty much liked all of it. It's just some I, I obviously like more than other records, so... When did you start going to shows and actually seeing bands play? That, that would be early 1983. It was a different world back then, as you can probably imagine. And we didn't have the internet, cell phones. You were pretty much on an island. The, the hardcore or punk scene or whatever wasn't nearly the size it is now. If you went to a big show, it might have 150 people. And maybe 50 to 75% of them actually listened, knew the band that was playing. So, you know, I'm out there in the West End skateboarding with my friends. We're listening to punk records. You know, the three or four of us, we think we're the only punk rockers in Richmond because we don't know anyone else. And we're stuck way out there in the West End. And you just didn't come downtown back then. You know, if you didn't come downtown, you were scared to come downtown until you actually came downtown. We're like, oh, okay, it's not so bad downtown. So we're out there skateboarding. We're skateboarding at a spillway. This this would have been, I guess, maybe March of 83. Some guys show up to skate, and it turns out they were guys from Graven Image and Honor Roll, like Penn Rollins and Nick Smilek and people like that. They showed up to skate, and they saw us in our homemade punk rock T-shirts. Because we didn't know you, you know, actual punk rock T-shirts existed that you could buy. So we just made our own out of undershirts. And they're like, oh, we're in a, a local band. And we're like, they're actual bands, like punk rock bands in Richmond? They're like, yeah, yeah. And so they gave us that tape, Your Skull is My Bowl. And oh, they, wow. so we're playing with Boyd at a matinee, you know, downtown. And, it, you know, it starts at three. And so, it'll, you know, there won't be a lot. It, it'll be pretty chill just come down and see it and so we went down and saw it and it was void and graven image and maybe death piggy and some one of the bands from the beach played and i'm not i can't remember exactly which band it was we were like wow this is awesome this is cool and all the bands are great and then void came on and i just was like holy cow this is the most insane thing i've ever seen and little did i know it 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 would still be one of the best you know live bands i've seen in my life the you know that first hardcore show uh that that was it and i was like oh and it just you know that catapulted me further into it and that first year i was i went to shows i probably saw some of the best shows i've ever seen you know bands like crucifix and minor threat and adrenaline od the big boys uh mdc 
you know, and the list goes on, DOA, just saw a whole lot of bands that first year that, you know, now people are like, wow, you know, they're, they're the top right. of what people would want to see, you know, now. So it's, you know, getting to see those bands in your first uh, year kind of gets you locked in pretty tight, I would say. So when did you actually start deciding like, hey, I want to be in a band and, and actually trying to sing and, and you know, do something with your friends like how'd you get into wow. that um okay so some of my close friends that i got to be close friends with like right off the bat when i first started going to shows you know a couple of them played instruments and one of them had a band down in uh he was going to boarding school i can't remember the name right offhand of the boarding school but it's down there like on the rappahannock river it's down near deltaville and he had a he was in a band with a couple of, of guys that went to school there. Incidentally, Wendell Blow from Iron Cross had went there for a year too when he was there. <laughs> you kind of oh, wow. your, your kids who were who were messing up or into punk rock to that school because back then that was just being into punk rock was was messing up, was screwing right. your life up or something. Like that. And so you know there were a bunch of punk rockers there, and they had a band. Wendell Blow wanted it, but they had a band called Screaming in Opposition. So. You know, these were kids our age, and we were like, well, maybe we could do that, too. And so we started the first band I was in. It was just a bunch of us. We met at a show. I think it was the, either the Discharge or DYS show. So what happened was we were like, well, I was like, well, I guess I'll try to play bass. And, you know, somebody else, well, I'll play guitar. And there was a couple, like the drummer we had was really good. So he actually actually played drums, like, right. you know. You know, he didn't have to, like, go out and buy his drum kit to start the band. He was already playing drums. And then one of the guitar players was, too, my brother, who played guitar, who had been playing guitar for maybe a year, um, was also, uh, you know, knew how to play his instrument. But none of the, the other guitars and I did not know. And we bought, pro we probably bought our instruments the week of the show, of our first practice. Oh, my and God. And I bought a, a Sears bass because it was the cheapest one I could find. And we did our first practice, and it was pretty evident that two of the guys in the band were ready to, to to be in a band, and two of us were not ready whatsoever. So we basically dropped out of the band, and they got another guy who played bass, and they were called the Dregs of Humanity. And uh, <laughs> that band was... And that was, they never actually played a show, but we saw them practice a whole bunch and they had maybe eight songs or something. And my brother played guitar in that band. So, so the guitarist that quit and I ended up starting another band after, you know, a month or two. And he just didn't want to play guitar anymore, but I still wanted to play bass. So he sang and I played bass. And then we got the guitars from Screaming in Opposition and the drummer from Dregs of Humanity to play because the, the drummer and dregs of humanity was so good and so we started a band and we ended up starting to play shows and the first show we got was we weren't even really ready to play we only had like two songs and we mm -hmm. were skateboarding at a quarter pipe that used to be over on gray street near the science museum but it was on gray street like in an alley it was really weird and it was a uh, dave brocky uh his quarter pipe and he was in um, Death Piggy at the time, and we were, you know, we were skateboarding it, and, and maybe it was our guitarist, I can't remember, it was like, yeah, we've got, we're, we just started a band, we're playing, and he was like, hey, well, we're playing a show in a month, why don't you open? 
<laughs> you know, we're like, what? We only have two songs. It's like, ah, just write some more and play the show. So we're like, okay. Oh, wow. So we wrote two more songs and played our first show with Death Piggy, um, where Absolute Art is. There was a bar, and we played in that bar with Death Piggy. And we oh played God. four songs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we played four songs twice. And that's how we, that's where I started. I started playing bass in a band and I was terrible at it, but I was good enough just to follow the guitar chords and, and kind of jump around a little bit. That was, that was about it for me. And so how did you end up singing? YFA, we, we actually played a lot of shows for only being together for about eight months. That summer we played every show that they couldn't find someone else to play basically at hard times um, because there were so many shows that summer and there were so few bands in Richmond and the bands didn't want to play every week. So oh, there wow. were a lot of shows where they, they needed to fill the bill up. And so we played with bands like JFA and Husker Du and Red Scare and all these bands. I think we played our last show that fall at a, at a festival out in um, Lancaster County, uh, Virginia called mm -hmm. Rock Against Nowhere. I can't remember what happened. I think our singer like had started getting into the Grateful Dead or something, just wasn't into it anymore. I can't remember if that was the case oh, or not. It was a long time ago. Oh, and our guitarist was going, going away to college too, and he couldn't really come back to practice because it was in North Carolina. So we just decided we, my brother and I and the drummer would would do YFA and I and we would just get a new singer and then the guitarist came back. He didn't really like school in North Carolina, so we had a bass player, two guitarists, and a drummer and no singer. And we had our first practice, and we we're like, "Well, who's going to sing?" And everybody's like, "Well, you're the worst person at your instrument. Why don't you try it first? Oh my God. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. And we did like a couple YFA songs with our original guitarist playing bass and my brother playing guitar and the drummer playing drums. Everybody's like, oh, that sounded good. Well, why don't you just keep singing and I'll play bass. And I was, like, I was like, okay. And then we changed the name and we took Pledge Allegiance and that. I guess it was that winter uh, that would have been like in november maybe of of 80 i want to say 84 or 85 i'm getting lost on the time frame now but it was right around then and we played our first show like over christmas break like a month or two later because we already had a ton of songs from yfa so we, it's not like we didn't have a set list to play and uh we played our first show with the circle jerks and verbal abuse in charlottesville Jesus and, like, Christ. They're only about but there were only like 50 people at the show because it was during Christmas break, and so no one was at school. And oh, my so God. I think half the people from Richmond, and uh, or most of the people were. And, like, when we played, like, the doors had just opened, and half the people that came weren't even there yet. And, and so the only people in the room were, like, the guys from the Circle Jerks and Verbal Abuse, and here I am playing my first show in front of them. Like it's a band practice or something, and they're all at band practice. <laughs> like, oh, oh shit! God, this is crazy. This is insane. But I, you know, all those guys were really good at their instruments. The guys that were in yeah. the band, so it, it it went okay. You know, it went fine, and we just kind of went from there. 
And so yeah. that was Pledge of Allegiance. How long did you guys play together? I guess about two years together. The drummer eventually quit, and we got a drummer from a metal band, like a high school metal band to play. It was really hard, for one thing, to find people who could play their instruments back then. Like, extremely hard. Especially if you progressed where you could actually, you know, play your instrument pretty well. And so we were having to replace a drummer that was really good, and we couldn't just get any drummer. You know, we had to find somebody really good. So we we got this metal kid to play drums. You know, he were, he was fine. He was good. Um, and then our bass player ended up quitting because I think it was because he thought our sound was getting too metal or something. I can't remember what happened. So then we got his brother, who was also in the metal band, to play bass. And then we added the guitarist from the metal band to play second guitar. And so then we kind of played maybe two or three shows like that. And then we broke up. Our last show we ever played was with Dag Nasty and at the Pyramid Club over there in Scott's Edition, where the Guar space is now, their practice space is. So, so Unseen Force broke up at the same time. About a week after we broke up, we were, Bo and I were at a show, and Greta and Dewey from Unseen Force were like, why don't we all start a band together? We just need to find a drummer, that's it. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. That'd be awesome. Because at the time... Lyrically, like where I wanted to go more into the uh, direction that Unseen Force was doing, you know, their right. lyrics, which were more political and that kind of thing mm-hmm. than Pledge Allegiance were. And so I, you know, I was like, cool, I, you know, I'd love to play with Greta and Dewey, you know, because they were from Unseen Force and, you know, I, you know, I'd kind of like to kind of change up what I'm doing. Bo was into it, you know, he he was into it. He He's like, man, playing with Dewey and Greta would be awesome. So we just need to find a drummer. We found some local high school kid to play drums for us because, again, it's really hard to find drums and um, right. drummers. So that's how, that's how Four Walls Falling started. I didn't realize Greta was in it. Wow. Yeah, Greta was in it probably. So she plays bass on the um, – the first song we ever did, it, the music's okay. The lyrics are terrible. Um, they're just terrible. Uh, it, it was on um, the Death Records 3 comp. Okay. And the song was wow. called Self-Confidence. Yeah, it was called right. Self-Confidence. And, and I had not, like, really gotten to the point where I, I was writing. Like, I was trying to start writing political lyrics, but they it just wasn't working. Like, I was like... Just running my head into a wall trying to write political lyrics, you know. Uh, and so I was still kind of falling back on the kind of lyrics I was writing in Pledge of Allegiance, like the whole posse, like, you know, kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's, that song, Self Confidence, was real posse. The lyrics were just, ugh, I can't, like, even stand them. But <laughs> so that's, that was what. Because because Pledge Allegiance, Death Records had been talking to us um, about doing something with them. Mm-hmm. And we were supposed to be on that comp, Death Records 3 comp, and then we broke up, and then we reformed this. And so, okay, why don't we just put a, a song out instead? And they were like, sure, just send something in. If we like it, we'll put it on there. So we recorded Self-confidence and a few other songs down at Flood Zone. Oh wow! Because they had actually had a recording studio. Yeah, at the, it, yeah, it was yeah. weird. It was yeah, you'd be on stage playing the nobody. I mean, it was really weird. 
And like I sang, I think in the elevator shaft. I can't remember. It was weird. It's just the. It, it, it's not like they had a separate recording studio there. You just recorded in the big room and and like got in closets or the elevator shaft or whatever. <laughs> wow. And so they, I guess they liked the song good enough to stick on that record. So that's how it made it on there. And then soon after that, um, I think just musically, we were going in different directions. Like Dewey left probably really like, a couple months into us being together because he joined Guar and Guar was touring all the time and he just didn't have time to be in Four Walls Falling. So he left. And then, so it was just a four piece for a while uh, with, with Gret on bass. And then I just think probably uh, musical differences or something like that, you know, because at the time we were like really into like the Cro-Mags or Bad Brains, Eye Against Eye record, you know, stuff like that. Bo, that's mm-hmm. where Bo's songwriting was more coming from. And then hers was coming from somewhere different. Like, I, I don't even, probably like Marginal Man, a little more, you know, melodic hardcore. So I think, you know, that's, that was the change. And so that's, that's how we kind of went forward after that. What were you drawing upon for like your lyrics? Cause I mean, the thing about Four Walls was it was the Culture Shock record. Like that thing, you know, had all these samples of uh, Martin Luther King. Um, what was influencing you to to try and uh, address these issues? Well, it's interesting. So again, I, I'm going to go back in time again. So when I started going to shows, like there weren't all these different subcultures within the hardcore punk scene. There just weren't enough people in it to have right. subcultures. You know, at least not in Richmond. So mm-hmm. you know. I'm going to go back even before I went to my first show. So I'm buying records. I'm, you know, buying zines at Plan 9, learning about hardcore. And, you know, the first thing I'm learning about punk and hardcore is just to be yourself, which really attracted to me. Like, just do what you want to do. Don't worry about what other people think about you. Just, you know, be yourself, right? And I read about, you know, Minor Threat and SSD and Straight Edge and how they didn't drink or do any of that. And at the time... You know, I drank occasionally, but I didn't like it. I was like, I don't like the taste. I don't like to do it. I don't like being drunk. But I I just did it occasionally because that's what everyone did. And then I was reading that, and I'm like, well, I'll stop drinking then because I don't really like it anyway. And that sounds pretty like a pretty cool idea not to drink. And, like, is that being different than everyone else, Um, you know? So I right. stopped drinking, you know, all that. I got into straight edge, but, you know, there weren't any other real straight edge kids in Richmond. You know, there may be a one or two for a week here and there were straight edge, but that's about it. It just, there just was no straight edge scene. So all my friends were into different kinds of punk and drank and all that stuff, and, and which was fine. And so I wasn't just into straight edge hardcore or anything by any means there was probably like four or five straight edge hardcore bands back then at all you know that's all there was <laughs> and so right. i was you know i was into everything i was into stuff like discharge and i was into all you know crucifix crucifix was one of my all was one of my favorite bands and is still one of my favorite bands and so i always had that too you know mm-hmm. that was a big influence on me so so when it comes to four walls falling let's 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 uh Let's get back in the time machine and go forward a little bit here. So when it came right. to the four walls falling ones to write political lyrics, I was, of course, drawing from crucifix, crass, and all that kind of stuff, discharge and what have you. But I was also, like, starting to listen to a lot of hip-hop. 
right around then, the Public Enemy um, record came out. Yo, Bum Rush the Show did. And, and, that, right. and that's, that record's not overtly political like the rest of Public Enemy's like records. I mean, you have to kind of dig into it for the politics. But, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, what I was learning through hip-hop and everything else about – you know, the, the history of racism in the country and, and slavery and everything else. And so that kind of came together, you know. And then I was also, right around then, hardcore had gotten a little, like, stale, like in around 86, well, probably about 87. There were some good bands, some really good bands out there. But there wasn't, like, just a ton, ton of bands. It wasn't, like, this new thing anymore, like it was in the early to mid-'80s. And so it almost, like, it needed a jolt, and that's when New York hardcore started coming into play, like, 87, 88. So that that Mm -hmm. was kind of an influence, but not quite as much, lyrically speaking. Maybe musically, that was obviously influencing everything that was coming out at that point, like in the late 80s. By the time Culture Shock came out, that was drawing from the hip-hop, the you know, the public enemies of the world, that kind of thing, and then what we called peace punk back then, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like uh, Crucifix and Discharge, which people would refer, refer to as crust punk now. Back then, we kind of called it peace punk, I guess. And then, you know, still the positive, you know, what lyrics of like Pledge Allegiance or something, that's always back there, somewhere back in there. That, that never totally leaves, but it probably wasn't until the last couple of records where that was kind of almost non-existent in the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the crazy uh, thing about that, that record is that it, it's got that positive aspect, but political. And that's something that you kind of didn't see a lot in like political hardcore or political punk is like you know like if you listen to discharge or something like that i mean literally if you go through like hear nothing see nothing say nothing it's just songs about the end of the world like the whole record like about a nuclear holocaust it's not very positive right no um and you were able to blend these things of like you know there's all this horrible stuff going on you got to pay attention to but like in a really like you know i'm motivated to fight against it kind of way you know which is something that i think punk really like punk punk really didn't get like the motivated part of it it was almost like well it's all messed up you know whatever (laughs) totally and it's interesting because pledge allegiance had this song and the lyrics didn't really turn out the way i intended them to or the message didn't the Pledge of Allegiance had a song called Gutless Protester, okay? Right. So it, 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 sounds, it sounds terrible. Like the, 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 the title of the song sounds like it's going to be like some like skinhead song, right? It's like peace punk, right? But no, it was about like seeing all the, the, the fucked up things going on in the world and just sitting in a corner and going, I'm just going to like bitch and moan, not get out there and do anything about it. You know what I mean? So right, that, right, that was, right. Uh, so it didn't really come off right, um, the lyric, uh, but that's what the song was about. Was about and not just taking it and lying down, getting up and doing something about it. Yeah. When did you get involved in animal rights and stuff like that? Was that around the same time? Well, okay, so it, it's interesting. So animal rights wasn't a big thing in the early '80s in punk rock at all, right? But mm-hmm. there were bands like Kraft and and P 
peace, you know, peace punk bands, uh, you know, a lot of bands on the Corpus, Corpus Christi record label and all that. Like Conflict and stuff like that. Yeah, Conflict and like that were around. So it was there and you knew about it. And so, you know, I'm I'm always someone who's thinking about things and I was always thinking about things. So I thought, hey, that's interesting, you know, that's really cool. And I guess it was like uh, 1986, I was, my, my brother Bo was, it was still in high school. I'd already graduated. He was probably in 11th or 12th grade by that point. He played on his high school basketball team and he was like the star player on their basketball team. Little known fact. Um, <laughs> there was actually a write-up in the Richmond Times dispatch about him scoring 39 points in a game. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, he was wow. good. He played like he even played Division three uh, college high college basketball for a few years. And I played on the basketball team too when I was in high school, but I was like I was a bench player. I wasn't you know that great. So we're, we're go- I'm going with my parents to see him play down in somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. I, I don't know where it was. You know, I'm just sitting there, just looking out the window, nothing. You know, just looking at the rural area of, of Virginia, what have you, and I see these cows. I'm just looking at them like, I just, it popped in my head. I, go, I don't really want to eat that anymore. <laughs> I just feel oh, weird wow. about eating that, that cow that's over there in that field. So from then on, I said, I'm just not going to eat beef anymore. So I stopped eating beef in like 1986. And then maybe about six months later, I'm like, well, that one's so hard. I'm just not going to eat pigs anymore either. And wow. a few months later, I'm not going to eat chickens anymore. And then for a while, I, you know, that that's about how it went. And I went vegetarian. And then after a while, I was like, well, I think I'll go vegan now. And then I went vegan. So that's kind of, you know, it was kind of a slow process, I guess, maybe. But it just, the first, the, the first thing I decided to cut out, it was more just like those bands that put this somewhere way back in my head, probably. Then it just popped in my head randomly that maybe I shouldn't be doing this, and I just stopped doing it. Wow, that's amazing! And so, what year do you think you probably like ended up like fully vegan? Eighty nine, I guess it was. It'd be a lot easier. How old would I've been then? Like nineteen or twenty? Let's say I was twenty. It, if if you're twenty years old now and want to go vegan, it's a hell of a lot easier. Right? I mean, yeah. people. I are mean, going, like you know what the milk alternatives were back then. It was soy milk and rice milk. Soy right. milk back then it tasted like soybeans. That's what it tasted like. Like it tasted like straight up like you turn soybeans in the water. Oh my it, god! It did not taste that good. And then rice milk tasted like you were drinking chalk. It's like I, you know, I drink coconut milk now or oat milk or something. And I like soy milk. I don't even know when the last time I had soy milk was. And I definitely don't even remember the last time I had rice milk unless I had some horchata or something. I mean, I just haven't even looked to see if they still sell it. I mean, I'm sure they do it somewhere like Elwood Thompson or Whole Foods. But being a V, like, how how was the whole scene and stuff back then here in Richmond? Like, what was the the culture of, of the Richmond scene like? Because at some point, like, there actually began to be a pretty big punk scene here that supported shows and bands and that kind of thing when did that really start to develop basically in the late 80s you know there weren't many hardcore punk bands in richmond i mean there may have been four or five now a lot of the guys that were in previous 
bands. We're still doing, you know, punk bands, hardcore bands. We're still doing bands, but maybe they were metal or math rock or, or what have you. But I think in the mid eighties, it got kind of big in Richmond, where like a big show might have like 400, 500 people at it. But mm-hmm. um, that quickly died back down. And so a big show, a big hardcore punk show might have like 150 people at it tops. And that's when, like, we were, like, I guess the big hardcore punk band in Richmond because there weren't really any others anyway. I mean, there were a couple of small bands, uh, but none of them were putting out records or anything. Um, We were the only ones that, like, had a record out or something. So um, I think it was probably in the early 90s, and I don't remember the exact year. I want to say 91 or 92, whenever it was that a veil moved down here. Mm -hmm. Um, That's when things started taking off. Like a lot of the bands in the late 80s, all the people in the bands were people from Richmond, right? Mm-hmm. They were all like, it was four walls falling and a bunch of bands who the, the members were all in high school. That's it. The Vale moves down here and they're like, you know, half of them are going to school at VCU. The other half are just hanging out at VCU and like they just developed like so fast. I mean, so quickly. A, a big following at VCU. I mean, it was almost like it was unbelievable. And they had kind of a sound that could draw people in. They, you know, that was it was hardcore punk, but it could also draw people in who maybe weren't into hardcore punk yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they might get into it, but they might be into to college rock or something like that. They just they just had a sound that could really bring a lot of different people in, right? And right around that same time, Inquisition was forming out there in the suburbs, and they also had a sound that wasn't quite as, I want to say, limited as as our sound was in that that it could attract some people who, some some high school kids that maybe weren't into hardcore punk that, that may have been scared of it otherwise. And then you plus you had Thomas, who's like the nicest guy in the world. Who, right. you know, if 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 he's at school during the day, everyone who talks to him is going to like him, and he's singing right. for the band, so they're going to want to come see him play. And so they quickly developed a big, big, big like out out, especially out in the West End, you know, like Freeman and Tucker and uh, Godwin, they just, I mean, they just developed a big following out there. It, it was enormous. And so you combine that with what Avail did down there, and it just blew up. It just it just blew up at that point. Because, I mean, I can remember going to, like, an Inquisition show, I think. It might have been 93, 94, something like that. So many people showed up for that that there were – maybe 50 to 100 people outside who couldn't even get into the show. Wow. I mean, it wow. was enormous. And a, and a veil would draw, you know. Now, Inquisition was only together a few years, right? But a veil was together a long time, so they built up this, like, steady following over time, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, where it became, like, not only a VCU thing, then it became, like, a a Richmond thing, and then it became like a Virginia thing. Then it became like, you know, an East Coast thing. Then it became like a, a you know, a whole like U.S. thing. And then it became like a world thing where Avail was just became this like gigantic thing. And, you know, we, we were never, uh, you know, we, we had a, a sound that, that was a little different. So I think we were kind of limited as, to, as far as how big we were going to get. 
uh, we just we weren't a fun band. Right. Now, they all had those covers that they would do that were just so much fun. Were so yeah. much fun, and then we just we never really did covers. And if we did a cover, it was always we did a cover to like screw with people. <laughs> we just we, four walls falling just had this twisted like I don't know what it's what it was from, but we just had this twisted like. But if we weren't in a band, we would have been in on the show Jackass or something, right? Oh um, my god! Yeah, just kind of we were just goofballs. I mean, we had this political message, but we also had a sense of humor and. But we we were just goofballs. I mean, you know, the guys from Avail were highly organized. They knew what they were doing. They were so good at it. And we were just a bunch of goofballs who wanted to do things like Fugazi did, you know, as far as our ethics and our approach went. But we were so unorganized. We were the most unorganized band in the world. So it just, you know, <laughs> it just, we were doing things like, guys we just you know ethically we just weren't good at like making it work <laughs> well that's the other side of it that people don't realize is you know to play a, a you know to do a tour you got to book a tour and to book a tour like there's a lot of work involved in all that stuff and just you know if you're playing in the band to have fun and, and hang out and have a good time like Booking yeah. a tour isn't a good time. <laughs> like no, that. it's not. And I'm, you know, I could, I could book a weekend thing, like three shows. Mm. You know, I was fine with doing that. I could handle that. But you know, I was just more into getting up on stage and playing, writing lyrics. You know, I lived at the time in one of those, what do you call it, a trunk room? But, you know, in a lot of the, the row houses and the fan in Oregon Hill, you have that little tiny room above the stairs that might be like eight oh. by five. Oh, wow. So I lived, yeah, I lived in one of those, and I built a loft in there for like maybe three years over on at 805 West Cary Street. We didn't even have heat upstairs. So I was totally like into paying, you know, $70 a month and just sleeping under 10 blankets and just, you know, just let my money sit in the bank and not spend it, you know, well, <laughs> buying food and cooking it for myself. Yeah. Like, I think the first time I met you was was there when you had your house there and you would have shows there in the basement. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that became like one of the venues, basically. I mean, like, I think I think my band Shitload of Pain played there once. Like, like that was a crazy yeah. like that was it was weird because like you talk about places that you could play. It was like, you know, there was Twisters. There was uh, Metro on and off, you know, as it got yeah. opened and closed. Um, Flood Zone. Yeah. And, and but then also. Um, your house. How did you get into doing like house shows and stuff like that? Well, we had a couple of local ones, and then it just became this thing where people would call because of Book Your Own Life or whatever, uh, or Book Your Own right. Life or whatever it's called. Uh, yeah. To maximize, they just call us and say, "Hey, we're coming through in August on August the fifteenth, and we need a show. Can we play in your basement?" It basically, we'd just be like, what kind of band are you? If they said like a straight edge band or a hardcore band or, a, you know, a political punk band or whatever, we'd go, yeah, sure. You know, 
so that's fine. That's, that's <laughs> you know, awesome. Oh, whatever. You know, we'll go, we'll make some flyers. I said, it's donation only, you know, we, you, so I don't know. You might get 15 bucks if you're lucky. Just depends on, you know, who the hell shows up and if how good they feel, you know, how much money is in their pocket at that point in time. I, I said, but, you know, if you really want to do it, I mean, it was always like, God, I don't know why you want to play our basement, but if you want to, go for it. <laughs> it was kind of like that. So we had all these touring bands come through from, like, places. Like, we must have a ton of bands from Canada who only had demos playing our basement. And the fun of it was just meeting all these people. I mean, that was the, that, for me, that was the most fun. I mean, the sound down there was terrible. The people who were in the front, it was so loud. You just you couldn't distinguish it. And then if you were in the back, it just sounded like, you know, it was all right. muffled by yep. people in front. And, or you're upstairs and it was coming through the floorboard. So the sound was completely awful. So the best part about it was just meeting all these people from wherever they were from and just hanging out with them. So after when you guys ended up uh, stopping four walls, what led to that? It's weird. So at the time, it seemed like an incident in when we were on tour in Europe was what kind of ended the band. But now, as I think back of it, maybe it was kind of on the way out. It was pretty much on the way out, I think, and we didn't even notice it at the time. But we were touring Europe, and we were supposed to tour the U.S. right when we got back, like two weeks after we got back. And we'd already... Uh, and flat, and we go back in time a little bit from the culture shock tour. We couldn't make it all the way to California because the tour had gotten booked really badly. And our, the van we had, we had to rent some van from a hippie, some hippies <laughs> van that was, wasn't running very well. Like it, it, it looked like the, um, the mystery machine from Scooby-Doo. And oh, it, um, yeah, it was crazy looking. And then it was a clutch, right? And it didn't go into second gear, so you kind of have to coast down off ramps and stuff. It was crazy. And oh so you God. had to go from first to third. It was insane. I don't know how we made it all the way home and didn't burn out the transmission. We just couldn't. We are like, we, there's no way this thing is getting across the Rocky Mountains. And we don't even have the money to get across the Rocky Mountains because all the shows, you know, we've gotten paid $10 here, $15 here. We'd show up. There wouldn't even be a show. It's just so much crazy stuff was happening. Oh, so we man. had to re cancel california and then rebook the tour to get home from book your own fucking life right so anyway we didn't make it out to california then so we had this other tour that we were supposed to go to in 95 after the u.s tour and two of us the guitarist john peters and i were kind of built for touring because we Mm. were just we just kind of viewed it as a as a vacation Right. <laughs> you know, like in other words, we're just having fun. So we just didn't right. care what happened. We were just having fun, right? Touring can be hard on a lot of people if they miss the comforts of home. And we just didn't miss the comforts of home because we had no comforts at home. We just didn't care. Right. You know, I lived in a three five six room that didn't have heat. I mean, I, what did I care? You know, I'll sleep anywhere. What well, doesn't matter. I don't need to take a shower every day. I just, I, it was, and we were on tour at the time with a band called uh, Sensefield from California. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, Yeah, and it, that may sound kind of weird that we were touring with them, but it actually worked out great because I, the people in the bands, the, both bands had a lot more in common than you would think from listening to the, the two bands, right? But um, we got oh, along yeah. with them great. And uh, But 
we just had two people who did not want to do the U.S. tour when we got back. And we didn't really even know that. But one night, apparently, I guess we were towards the end of the tour, and we had hooked up with Lifetime and State of the Nation. We are playing like 10 shows with them, the end of the U.S. tour. And our tour manager, who was also really into us, like Four Oral Falling was one of his favorite bands. He was from Prague, and he came up and said, man, I'm so bummed you aren't doing your U.S. tour when you get home. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, we are. And he goes, oh, I heard like your bass player. I heard your, your bass player calling the the uh, back home and telling your leaving a message for your brother that y'all had decided not to do the U.S. tour. I was like, oh what? shit! <laughs> yeah, because no one had talked to my, myself or John Peters, and I and I flew into. I mean. I'm pretty easy to get along with, but I, I I probably flew into a rage and probably more so than I should have. And it didn't go well between my bass player and I. Bass player's like, well, if we're not doing this tour, I'm quitting the band. I'm not even going to do the band anymore. You know, I just don't even want to do it anymore if we're just going to quit, you know, because my brother's done all this hard work to book the tour. We haven't ever toured all the way to California. We need to do it, right? And, right, um, yeah. Yeah, so it, it was uh, it was almost to the point where like, you know, I quit, and then my brother's like, "Well, if you're quitting, I'm quitting. I'm not doing the band without you." So we both quit, and that was the end of the band. And looking back on it, you know, at that point in the band, it was almost like musically and lyrically, we'd also run up against the wall because we were at the same time. You know, this was probably about a year. We probably broke up about a year after Food for Worms came out. So we were trying mm -hmm. to write new material, and we just didn't like anything we were writing. The only new song we actually had a full song of, and we played it a few times on that European tour. Like, I listen to it now, and the song's horrible. It's just not a good song. It was melodic, but it had no energy. It just, You know, I listen, I'm like, I'm glad we never recorded that song to be honest. And then we couldn't like get together on any music we were writing. And I, and I think one of the reasons was because, you, you know, we had two really good songwriters in the band and John Peters and Bo, and we added a bass player at the end who was also a songwriter and he was an incredible bass player. Right. Mm -hmm. But they just kind of clashed. Maybe that the, the song styles clashed and the, what people wanted to do, the directions people wanted to do, wanted to go right. in were different. If we had written another record, it might not have been very good at all. And so it's almost like it, it, it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere that great because of that anyway. So it's probably good we broke up. But um, yeah, it was just weird. And but we all still get along and like. Today, we get along great. We don't want to do any reunion shows or anything, but we still get together and we still talk and we do all that, you know, and so it's it's cool. That's awesome that you're still, like, friends yeah. and stuff. Um, and the, so you did a band right after Four Walls, too, right? Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was, was that Joy Burner? Burner. Yeah. Yeah. So my brother got more into writing more rock-based stuff or – Jawbox meets Soundgarden meets this meets that and the other. You know what I mean? He got right, more right. into writing stuff like that. And then I just wanted to do something like that I hadn't done before in a band. I wanted to do something that vocally more like Shudder to Think or something, where I was actually right. more. 
Yeah, yeah. And then um, I just wanted to test my voice, basically, see what I could do there. And then mm. for, um, you know, lyrics, I just wanted to do something weird, like nothing I'd ever written before. I just wanted to take a whole different approach to writing lyrics. You hear the early stuff in Joy Burner, and it almost sounds like lyrically, because I hadn't figured out exactly what that would be yet. It sounds almost, some of it sounds like it's like where Four Walls Falling left off lyrically. But then the right. other, of it, other parts that were just, just weird, like, I don't want to say love songs or anything like that, because they're just weird. They're almost like some weird dream you have or some just weird stuff going on. But then the the funny thing is, by the time we got to the end of Joy Burner, the last couple of songs we wrote, I was back to writing political stuff again. But more than <laughs> who does. I'd done the whole weird, like just weird, you know, vote, you know, lyric stuff, and I just kind of like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore now, and I just started writing, like back to writing like some type of like political kind of bent to stuff. So Joy Burner just more like fizzled out. We were just at a point mm-hmm. in our lives we all had jobs. I'd graduated from college. I was going to move somewhere. I didn't know where because I'd lived in Richmond my whole life. I just wanted to try somewhere new and. It just kind of just fizzled out. Well, so, you know, to this day, like, you still go to shows. Like, oh, I mean, not obviously the second because pandemic. Not much, whatever, but, but occasionally, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How have you seen the Richmond scene change? Like, because, I mean, it's drastically different now. And, you know, a lot of folks have opinions about that. What are your thoughts about, like, seeing kind of hardcore and punk, like, evolve over these past, like, 30 years or so? Well, I don't think it's worse or better in the grand scheme of things, because it all depends on what someone thinks is worse or better, right? It's subjective. Mm -hmm. But, I mean... you know, I, I, I'm not involved really with the scene now, right? I mean, I may go mm. to a show occasionally, and I, and I'll listen to bands. Like, I, I don't know where to really find bands anymore. I know they're on the internet and stuff, and I can find them on the internet. But, like, you know, it's not like I'm involved with the scene where a new band comes out, and I know they're out just because I'm involved with the scene, right? Like, right. it's almost like Dave Brown or someone has to send me something. <laughs> And go, hey, listen yeah, to that's how it works for me, too. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, someone like that has to send me something or, you know, or, you know, and, and I'll hear bands. Sometimes I won't hear them until they've been together for a year and a half. And I'll be like, wow, uh-huh. that's good. But, you know, I may have a much more positive view of this the, the scene in Richmond over the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Because it all blends to me because I'm so old now. Time goes so fast that, you know. 20 years to me in Richmond seems like the present. Let me put it that way, right? Right, right. I look at Richmond, and if I was growing up in the scene today or in the scene in the last 20 years, if those were my formative years, I'd be pretty damn stoked, I think. I think yeah, I would I mean, be. You know, we had Plan 9, but Plan 9 isn't Vinyl Conflict. I mean, Vinyl Conflict is all metal and punk and hardcore. That's all it is. We We yep. didn't have anything like that. We had nothing like yeah. that. So, I mean, that's really cool right there. We didn't have, I mean, you know, White Cross was, you know, that they were they were kind of big throughout the United States, but not really. I mean, they weren't one of the bigger bands by any means. We've had bands over the past 25 years, like Avail and Municipal Waste and Iron Reagan and Down to Nothing. And just tons of bands that were a lot bigger Strike than anywhere. ever were. 
back in the 80s. Yeah, Strike Anywhere, there's another band. And, you know, you, you, you know, Strike Anywhere and Avail were like the first of those bands to come along that really hit big. But then right after that, it was down to nothing. I mean, Municipal Waste and then Iron yeah. Reagan. I mean, they're just Lamb of God. I mean, their roots were in the hardcore scene. So, um, you know, and Guar is big. Guar has been big forever. So I guess you could put them in there with, the you know, you oh, know yeah. Avail and Strike Anywhere. But they were uh, like, Guar is almost its own thing. I mean, yeah, Guar, you know, I know people Guar's call them anomaly. a metal band. <laughs> They're an anomaly. I mean, people call them a metal band, but it, to me, I look at it and, and and I listen to it and I watch them play and I'm like, they're as punk as they are metal. I'm yeah, sorry, but totally. they're as punk as they are metal. And they're just like this, they're like their own whole musical genre. So I don't even yeah, know and where the, that band could have existed. <laughs> they, they could like exist anywhere and be Guar. You know, like like they could yeah. just move to some random city and because they're they're so they have their own idea so much that like yeah. I mean I'm sure the community around them informed them but like it's not evident <laughs> you know like, yeah <laughs> well it yeah. isn't it isn't I mean but you'd have to have been around back when they formed and they you know they, they uh, formed out of the ashes of Death Piggy. And if you saw any of Death Piggy's shows, especially their later ones, you would kind of see that how, you know, Guar could could end up coming to be. Because Death Piggy was like a theatrical event, too, especially towards the end. And they just didn't have didn't all the know crazy that. costumes. Oh, yeah. I, I saw one show where they played in Charlottesville where they had a sword fight on stage and they were dressed Jesus in togas Christ. and stuff. And they oh all ended God. up – dying one by one on stage and other people would fit, get up there and finish the song. It was, you know, they just, I mean, Dave Brocky just had this creative mind that was never stopped moving. And I really think if Guar hadn't become what it became so fast, Guar mm-hmm. might've been something that completely changed and went in all different directions over time. Right. Kind of like death piggy did, but Guar became this like big thing so quick where it was like Guar is Guar and Guar has to be Guar and Guar can't be anything else but Guar, nothing that's like Guar too, that it became its thing that, you know, it just kept going, you know what I mean, as it was Guar, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, but it's just weird to me because Dave Brocky was such a creative person his mind was in so many different places, thinking about so many different things, that to me, Guar almost seems like it's too constrained for his mind. That totally makes sense. I mean, he and I think he would do like the Dave Rocky experience stuff to kind of do that. Yeah, I mean, he did so many right. different things that he was involved with in some way or another, where he could pre put like his, he could use his creative input in different ways because he was so creative even beyond Guar and what yeah. Guar was about. You know, we kind of talked about briefly about um the city and and all that stuff how have you seen richmond as a city change because i mean that's that's the thing like when you're when you were doing those shows and, and when i when i first got into this stuff in the 90s and I, and I i met you richmond was a very oppressive like towards the music community even towards the art yeah. like, it was a weird thing because it's this like art town you know i mean it's got the art school it's like why half the people are here is for the art school but the city like yeah. hated art, like they hated every aspect of it. And now it seems like they embrace it. Like, how have you seen the city change over these years? 
Yeah, it, it's tough to say. I mean, it's kind of like I have great memories of when I was young and in Richmond as far as mm. being into punk rock and hardcore. It's almost like there was so much to rebel against here. Richmond right. was such a boring place that you had yeah. to be really creative and make your own fun because there was nothing going on here. I mean, in the summer when VCU was out, I mean, there was literally, besides the show or two every month, you know, there was nothing going on here. It was boring as heck. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. it was really gritty and, you know, and there's aspects about that that, you, that you know, you think about nostalgically for, mm -hmm. for some weird reason. You know, I guess because it influenced what you did as as a band, but at mm -hmm. the same time, you know, it's almost like, I mean, I'd be to say Richmond hasn't come a long way, or that Richmond isn't a better place than it was thirty or forty years ago, based on like just because I was in a punk rock band back then would be kind of ridiculous. Um, right. It's definitely. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a much better place, and I don't, you know, if you're into in, into hardcore or you're into punk, or you're into the protest movement. The protest movement is a lot bigger and a lot more organized here than it ever was when we were around, you know, a lot. Yeah, more. for and real. So it's kind of like okay, so it's better in that regard. So it's also better in people's standards of living, or the median of that is a little higher than it used to be. You know, the normal person is is probably doing a little better, I guess, than they would have been 20 years ago when it was almost impossible to find a job at all. Um, yeah. No matter what it was you did. Like, I couldn't find a summer job. I, I was lucky just to find a part-time job in the summer. Um, but, you know what I mean? I mean, it was, like, really hard. Unless you had a hot college degree to find a job back then. Basically, what you have, whether you think it's better or worse, is you have Richmond has become a hub, so to speak. People want to, people from other places want to be here. Yeah. They want to be here. And working in real estate, I see it all the time. Richmond was named one of the five or ten, I don't know what it was. I didn't see the article. My brother was telling me places that people want to live in the United States if they work from home. So people who can work from home are moving here. Like people who work in D.C. but can work from home and only have to go up to D.C. for a meeting like once every two weeks, they're moving here. And it's just happening from all over. I mean, it's just I had a guy at an open house I was doing. He, he had moved here from Brooklyn. And I was like, so what do you think of Richmond? He'd lived here for a year. He's like, it's like, he goes, it's just as cool as living in Brooklyn. We've, you've got everything Brooklyn does. It's just easier to get around. Wow. <laughs> you, know, you don't get stuck in wow. traffic. He goes, it's cleaner and it's easier to get around and it's not as nearly as expensive. But you've got all the things. You've got great food just like up in New York. You've got everything that we had up in New York. It's just easier to get around here. And it doesn't cost near as much to live here. Now, that'll probably change. That's one of the bad aspects is that'll just get harder and harder and more expensive for people to live here. And, yeah. you know, and, and that would be, I guess, wouldn't be such a problem if, you know, if people's pay reflected that, you know what I mean? Or oh, yeah. It, oh, yeah. It, but it's just that that never happens that way, unfortunately. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. The the dollar the dollar more it costs to do something, your your wages are only going up fifty percent. 
you know, 50 cents, I mean, 50 cents. So it, it never actually reflects, you know, the growth, unfortunately. But, you know, there are a lot of people moving here. And one thing I like about that is the people who are moving here love being here. They bring an energy that says, "We, I like being here. Richmond's a great place where you get some people who've lived here their whole lives and they're just like, ah, ah. but they've always been. Like <laughs> no, that I mean, that's, but, I didn't even realize we had, I was born here and I've lived all yeah. but maybe three years of my life here. And I, I never even realized we had like rapids at like a measurable level until all these other folks started moving here talking about them. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Like I definitely just, being a Richmonder, you never went in the river. Like, I, I never because there was keep on it. It was well, like you did a lot cleaner now than it was. <laughs> yeah, right. But growing up in that, you didn't go in that like twenty years ago without coming out with some problems. You know, <laughs> like no, and I know you didn't. No, it was rough. Yeah, it's you know you couldn't go. You know, a lot of people complain about what Gray Street has turned into now, right? With VCU and everything, and I get right, it. Right, right. But at the same time, back in the eighties. If you were into hardcore punk rock, Gray Street was the only place you went. Like you, yep. you could most of Richmond, you couldn't hang out in at night. Right. You just you you could even if you wanted to, you just couldn't do it. You know now, so all the people that would be hanging out at Gray Street, the punk rock types, they can hang out all over the place now in Richmond. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like point. yeah, Gray Street's not what it used to be, and that sucks. But there's a whole lot of of, of a new opportunities that have opened up for people and we're not people aren't stuck in one place because everything else is just you know I, I mean I can remember when over there near um where they where the uh first Fridays is on Broad Street it you know you couldn't have done that in the 90s oh no <laughs> you could I mean, have done that as well. like I mean there's a serious there's a lot of prostitution and drug dealing going on there you know and it's just yeah we it's just find it was you go out there Sunday morning outside the tattoo shop outside Red Dragon there, we'd just find, yeah. like, bullets laying on the ground, like shot bullets. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I I laugh my ass off when I hear someone complain about – who complain in in the present day sense of uh, Richmond now as being violent or – Right. Uh, Richmond's got a lot of crime or something. I'm like – yeah, right. Richmond does not have right. a lot of crime. I'm sorry, your tool shed getting broken into is not a lot of crime. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, it's a lot better. I mean, Jesus, even even the bottom back then, um, you know, it's just all those abandoned warehouses, like the Watkins Cottrell buildings that are all like lost and stuff. Now, it was, yeah. it was just all these abandoned warehouses. I mean, yeah. they weren't. Nothing was going. On. I mean, it's just very. And so, since nothing's happening, it's just very dangerous to be at. You know, like that whole bottom yeah. was, was kind of like that. Yeah, I mean, you definitely had to know Richmond, know where you could go and where you couldn't, and get away with it. Um, yeah, you had to have street smarts if you were going to come down here back then, because people weren't going to put up with you. You know, for better or for worse, they just, they, it just, it's just the way it was back then. I wanted to ask you, um, how have you managed to stay so positive over the years? <laughs> I don't know. Am I? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you are. Like, I think you've managed to, like, kind of 
you know, keep this like hope and punk rock and like, you know, going, making yourself available to things like I've noticed, you know, some folks, they kind of just kind of move away from that. Why do you think that you've um, kind of stayed around that kind of thing? Um, I guess, I don't know. That's a good question. Well, I mean, for one thing, it's, it's, you know, the music and, and all that kind of speak to me, you know, still speak to me more than any other kind of music, I think. And it was so important to me uh, when I was growing up and it had such an effect on me that I think it probably stayed with me. But mm-hmm. also I just like to, to, to see, you know, people, I just find it interesting and find it really cool to see people kind of going through the same things like, like I went through when I was younger and, and seeing how they kind of take something that I was part of and, and do their own thing with it. And so I just try to be supportive of that and realizing, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people, I don't, you know, and this, I'm probably going all over the place here, but one of those people that um, I'm not one to harp on the past that much in other words mm-hmm. i just accept that change is going to happen it's always going to happen everything is for is is always changing you can't stop change from happening so the best you can do is make the best out of it that you can and make it make sense for you and, and not be scared of it that doesn't mean change is always good or always bad it's it, it's just the way it is and you can't sit there and just be like oh it's not the way it used to be well you know of course it's not going to be the same it used to be there's no way it can be especially for me since i'm 30 years older so you know i accept it and and i just i love to see what people you know people taking it and running with it and see what they do with it and i just find it all interesting and and pretty cool you know people get locked into these these, I, I mean, because I mean, the most powerful thing you can ever have is a personal narrative, you know. So that it, it's like, you know, if I go buy a CD by a band or something, you know, it, it, it means a little something because I'm, I'm dropping some money on it. Maybe I remember going to the store, but if I go see that band now, I've got like a story in my head, and that connects it. And I think that's why people get so stuck on the past is because they're in the past, like their experience is in the past. And exactly. Once they start to pull away from it or they start to maybe, you know, if they go to a show and they're like, man, I'm too old to be here and they fucking leave. That's their new narrative of that thing, you know, or like if yeah. if, if they don't have a million friends there and they're like, fuck it, I'm not going to be here. Like then that becomes the narrative of those shows and they start pulling themselves out and then they'll harp on when things were when they fit in, you know, and I've I've seen people that like kind of like you know, like guys like you know like Roger Murray and 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 like well rabies before he passed like these guys had been through like many many cycles of it and that you know they still yeah. found a way to like appreciate it and actually support new bands coming up you know but then there'd be people that just wouldn't and I really think it's just that they can't see their own um their own self in that new thing like they think that for some reason it's it's not valid now. right exactly and it's like yeah i can't go to a show and dive off the stage and slam dance and do all that i mean i guess i could but i'd probably end up in the hospital right but, um and break a hip or something but i can still stand in the back and watch and just observe and be like oh cool you know kid yeah. 
the kids are still doing it, you know? You know, I mean, and that's what matters. I mean, that people are still doing something with it. And as far as I can tell, they're doing something cool with it. I don't see any difference, really, in what kids are doing now and what they were doing back then. It's like, this, I mean, it's the same emotion, it seems to me. It's, it's coming from the same place. You know, you may have different ways to get your, your what you're trying to say out now that you didn't back then. It may not, you know, a band that, like, Minor Threat was original back then and a band that sounds like Minor Threat now sounds like Minor Threat now. But, I mean, you know, it's just the way music is. I mean, we've pretty much gotten to a point, for the most part anyway, in rock-based music where we're reinventing the wheel anyway. And you just have to kind of accept that. And, and when someone does it really well, you give them props. And if it's just, and if it's boring, then it's boring. You know, it's just, everyone's going to, it's going to be different all the time. Yeah. And the other cool thing is like some of these bands that are like, and this is kind of something that is weird is like, there's so much cross genre stuff now, you know, like, like kids because of, I guess like the punk scene is so less kind of like separated almost or, or people's, uh, ideas of music are, are so kind of less separated that you get these bands that are like doing really interesting shit and they're, you know, they might operate punk rock, like they might operate ethically like punk rock, like they're playing like, you know, small shows and, and, you know, kind of working into this network of their friends and stuff, but their sound can be like pulling from all kinds of crazy places that, you know, 20 years ago, bands really weren't i think that's a really yeah. kind of interesting development too people put their own spin and that's good i think i really think you know i, I love to hear that because i think on average the kids today are a lot better at their instruments than they were when i was a lot better than when you know back in the 80s when i was into it i mean you had some really good musicians back then but they were few and far between you know like i was saying earlier it was hard to, if, if your drummer quit, it was hard to find another drummer. Well, it's not that hard anymore. And, and so they're really good at their instruments now. So so why try to sound like you're the first, you know, negative approach 7-inch, even though that's a great 7-inch? Why, like, force yourself to sound like that? Why not just kind of, it's kind of it's kind of like a muffin. You just, it, you bake it and it just kind of flowers out and does its thing. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh it, they have the ability to, so why not just experiment and, and do something cool? Um, now, you know, we've seen in the past bands go, okay, now I want to experiment, and it's almost like a force thing. They're they're like forcing themselves to do something different, and it right. kind of loses like the energy of what they did before, and that's never that interesting when that happens, where it's just like. They say, it sounds like they're forcing it on themselves, but mm-hmm. you know, bands now just just do your thing, you know, just you know, don't don't try to like force yourself to move in a in a, in a, in a certain direction, and, and you'll probably do well because you can all play your instruments. <laughs> you can all play your instruments, so you don't have that holding you back anymore. You know, go for it. And that concludes my interview with Taylor Steele. I'd like to thank Taylor for taking the time to talk with me. You can hear Four Walls Falling's record, Culture Shock, on Spotify and most streaming services. And if you haven't heard it, I definitely recommend you check it out. For more episodes of this podcast, visit VariousThingsPodcast.com 
or search for us on your favorite podcasting app. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.